Welcome to Talking Success with Asma Mir in partnership with Withers, the international law firm. The reason I used to inwardly smile is because no one could ever put more pressure on me than I put on myself. I have failures and I am not embarrassed to say I have failures. I just knew that being injured was going to derail our chances and it did. And that's when I had to make a decision. What next? I'm Asma Mir, and this is the podcast where successful people reveal the defining moments of their careers and indeed their lives. Because we all face moments of crisis, it's how we respond that makes all the difference. When I was made the board director for Bruin Dolphin, that particularly being the first woman in its 250 year history, that was a very proud moment, I must admit. Today I'm speaking to Sarah Soar. She joined one of the largest British wealth management firms, Bruin Dolphin, rising through the ranks to become their first female executive director. She's now the CEO of Hawksmoor Investment Management and a board member for PIMFA, which is a leading British trade association for investment management firms. She also finds time to mentor young women who are starting out in the wealth management sector. Uh, Sarah, you sound very busy, so thank you for finding the time to join me. It's a great pleasure. I'm going to begin with one of our big questions. Now you do, as I've just outlined, have a successful um, career in the financial services sector, but was there a road less travelled, perhaps a different path that you considered taking at one point in your life? Absolutely, definitely. Um, I always wanted to be a doctor. Uh, My father was an ear, nose and throat surgeon and my mother was a nurse. And from a very young age, I used to go and watch my father doing operations And as a result, I took biology and physics and chemistry A-levels with a view to getting into medical school. And I got three offers from three medical schools. Unfortunately, and I still say this, uh, that physics is spelt with an F because that's what I got in my physics (laughs) A-level. Physics is not easy. No. (laughs) So I had to slightly rethink that. (laughs) I retook and managed to get a, a D, which was still well short of the um, the re- medical school requirement. So I went off to Australia for a gap year in 1980, which was before the internet, before mobile telephones, and uh, went to the Great Barrier Reef, decided I wanted to do marine biology and zoology, came back and did a three-year joint honours degree at Bangor University in North Wales but then decided I didn't really want to stare down a microscope all day. And um, I ended up getting this job completely by accident. Mm, well, I can't wait to hear. I do love it when people get jobs by accident. How, how did you get this job by accident? <laughs> I met a bloke in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> well, just about. Um, my now husband, but then fiance, was moving to London and I went to help him move into his flat for the weekend. And the chap in the flat below knocked on the door and said, my name's Hugo can I take you guys out for a drink? And so we went to the pub around the corner, as you do. Uh, I said to Hugo, what do you do? And he said, I'm a dealer for a firm of stockbrokers in the city. And those were three words I didn't understand, dealer, stockbroker, and city. Uh, He said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I've just left university. I've no idea what I'm going to do. And three days later, when I was back at home with my parents, he gave me a ring and said, there's a job going at the firm I work for. Would you be interested? Goodness me. I know. So I went along and was interviewed 
and got the job on the spot. And my mother phoned me up and said, um, so how did it go? And I said, well, they've put me on three month probation. This was in October. So that'll take me through to Christmas and I'll be able to full Christmas presents. <laughs> these are my exact words. And then I will go and get a proper job in the new year, I said. That was 36 years ago. <laughs> See, that's amazing because I, I ended up in something that I didn't. So I'd studied law and then I ended up uh, as a graduate trainee at a TV company because I rejected going into law. And it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. But yes, 27 years later, you know, I'm, I'm still in that industry. So although that might sound crazy to some people, I do actually understand it. What was it then that made you stay? I loved it. I loved the people. It was is still very hard work, but I loved the interaction with clients. I like helping people. That's what really gives me an enormous amount of pleasure. And I enjoyed the fact that we were helping people with their investments to do well, whether it was elderly people who needed income to survive on in retirement, or whether it was younger people growing the money that they'd saved or invested. I just loved the people I was working with. And I've never looked back, as you mm. can tell. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is which is very good and all the all the better for your employer. Um, when you joined Bruindolf, and I think I'm right in saying that was the mid '80s, is that right? Yes. And that was the so-called decade of greed. Greed is good. Gordon Gecko, all the caricatures surrounding that. Was that something that you were aware of at the time as you decided to stay within that sphere? I suppose I was aware of it. You know, you'd look at the film and think, but that's nothing like work at all. The perception and the reality are two very, very different things. My first job actually was filling in BT telecom application forms for clients when it was being floated. Mm. Um, and it didn't really cross my mind that this was about greed. This was just about helping people. And it was just helping ordinary people with their investments and mm. nothing more than that. And yes, everything that you see related in those sort of films, you think, well, that's not, it's not how it is at work. Let's talk about management and, and management style. I wonder if it's fair to say that across the corporate world, there is a, an assumption sometimes that if you're good at bringing clients in, then you'll be a good manager as well. But I know through personal experience, those are actually two very different skill sets. And it is possible to have both of them, but one doesn't necessarily presuppose the other. And I wonder what the process was like for you of gaining the skills to manage an office and then a whole company. Was it a steep learning curve or was it easy? Well, it's quite funny, actually, because I was working, as you can probably imagine, with a lot of men. And men tend to have more confidence than women when it comes to pushing themselves to the next level. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I was first approached to run the office, it didn't really cross my mind that I couldn't do it. But I was surrounded by people who were in a similar situation who just didn't question the fact that they could do it. So I kind of went with the flow, really. Mm. But I do remember suggesting to four of my male colleagues that perhaps we might need some management training. And they looked at me absolutely aghast as if say, well, why would I need that? <laughs> so, so quite frankly, I, I just kind of carried on. We did eventually have some training, it has to be said. But you know, it was having that confidence actually helped me when I might have doubted whether I was actually capable of doing it or not. Mm. On, on the point of gender, I was born in 1971. So I'm obviously very aware of the 80s. I have this kind of theory that although this was an issue, there seemed to be a lot of women in the media, in you know your line of work, who just did it and got on with it. And as you say, didn't question it. It hadn't become this 
issue that everyone had to have an opinion on, that everyone had to pick a side on, that, you know, do you believe in quotas? Do you believe in this? And I wonder whether that helped, do you think? I mean, if you were doing the same thing 10 years ago, or perhaps today, do you think it would be very different? Yes, I think it would be different. It's it's very much tabled as an issue now, whereas before it wasn't. And therefore, you just kind of got on with it. And if you were heading on a career path, then, you know, if I sat around the table and quite often I was the only woman in the room. Mm. But, you know, I didn't, I almost didn't notice I was mm-hmm. the only woman in the room. I think the only time I really did notice was just after I went back to work after my first daughter was born and I thought what's that dreadful smell and realized she'd thrown up on my shoulder and it was the <laughs> smell of old rancid milk <laughs> that was me oh I know it well <laughs> so um but no it it, it just wasn't an issue it, mm. it, in in the way that it it is nowadays and it's it's important and it's right that it is tabled mm. now um yeah. without any shadow of a doubt um but it, it certainly wasn't then. Yeah. I think it's interesting to discuss it, not because it shouldn't be an issue, really. It's just because sometimes it just, you can't quite work out why a few women manage to just keep going, you know, under a, a remarkable head of steam. But if we do come up to date, I know you're very aware of this, recent FT article um, states that women account for just under 26% of investment teams at the big investment companies, which, which is an interesting statistic. I know you're very active encouraging gender diversity at um, Hawksmoor and across the sector. In 2021, how do we do that? How do we encourage some kind of parity? So my feeling is that it's really changing the male leaders of these organizations and getting them on board. Mm. So it's all very well women banging the drum, but it's actually getting the male leaders to really embrace it. And that is what is changing. And I've heard quite a lot of male leaders say, I didn't get it until Mm. I got it. And also, interestingly, the fathers of daughters if you actually say, how would you feel if your daughter was treated like that? And that's mm. often a bit of a, a, a switch goes on and they go, ah, yes, now I see where you're coming from. So it is actually working through that. And that's one way of doing it. But it's also making the industry known to young women as a good career and not a Gordon Gecko, Wolf of mm. Wall Street type environment. So that means education at school level in particular I'm afraid that still a lot of schools on the careers curriculum, this doesn't even feature. It's from the top down and from the bottom up. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a two-way process. Um, now, kind of related to that, this podcast is about defining moments. And for many people, a crunch point in their careers happens when they have children. Uh, more so, I think the crunch point would affect women than men, but obviously men become parents too. Finance is not traditionally seen as an industry that's particularly um, sympathetic to the needs of working parents. Is that still true, do you think? Or, or is there more flexibility? And I wonder whether the pandemic has hastened that. So there is definitely more flexibility. And I think there's no doubt that firms pre-pandemic were thinking outside the box already. But still there was a reluctance by quite a lot of people to to allow flexible working or working from home was still seen as a yeah 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 you just want to do the washing and you know have a cozy day <laughs> anyway we won't go there right now um I have to, I have just done the washing actually but anyway <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly and why not yes. and why not but uh what of course it has done is proved to everybody and the doubting senior leaders 
that actually you can run a business remotely and their flexible working actually is so much better. And if people are working, it, it's their output and how well they do their job where they are based is irrelevant um if it's a job obviously it doesn't need to be using machinery or whatever but you know people give the best if they are in the best employed circumstances for themselves that's how you get the best output and the best productivity from your staff now we mentioned the pandemic earlier on what has the biggest challenge of the pandemic been for you making sure that my staff are mentally and physically fit and healthy. That is the number one priority. They are my number one priority because it's a completely a people business. Without them, we have no business. Everybody looked out for each other. And, you know, if somebody did have a wobble, then take time out to get themselves back into fitness again. Mm. Let's talk about decision making as well, because I always find that very fascinating. Imagine that you're making decisions every moment, well, every day anyway. Do you, what is your decision making process? I'm quite consultative. I quite like to test the water you know you learn by your mistakes don't you and and I you know in the past I've made decisions which you know without consulting people and that has tended sometimes sometimes it works sometimes you have to on the basis that I've got time I do like to consult the relevant people to make sure I'm not completely barking up the wrong tree when one actually hits the the green button, so to speak. Um, without telling me the details, can you remember a decision that you did not enjoy making? Gosh, having to ask people, telling them that their, their uh, job is made redundant mm. and people who you know have been very loyal to the firm. And this was a, quite a long time ago. We moved an office from London, out of London. I had to sit down with a lot of people and tell them, Unless they wanted to relocate, they weren't going to have a job. And that was hard. I, mm. I, but the decision had to be made because it, it was in the right interests of the firm moving forward. But it, I always hate it when it affects people. Well, absolutely. I do not envy you at all. We're quite interested in the concept of success as well on this podcast. I think it's probably quite a British thing that success. I don't want to, you know, as maybe a tall poppy syndrome. I don't want to kind of trumpet the fact that I've done well. But I wonder what your take on this is. Do you ever think in terms of success or have you ever, and at what point in your career have you felt at your most successful? So I must admit, no, I don't particularly think of myself as being very successful. I'm doing a job which I absolutely love with people I really, really enjoy. And that's been the case throughout my career. But I do think that when I was made the board director for Bruin Dolphin, that particularly being the first woman in its 250-year mm. history, that was a very proud moment, I must admit. Mm. And I did feel... Mm, yeah, I think I might have cracked this. <laughs> but actually also becoming a CEO, um, which is what I've always aspired to, even if I didn't actually admit it to anybody else. But I knew that. <laughs> but I knew, I told the dog, because he, he's quite good at keeping secrets. <laughs> but um, I suppose that's, that's been the other one is when that came through, I was I was pretty chuffed about that, I must admit. Now you have achieved one of the one of your secret ambitions, but what is next for you? Well, I'm probably going to work for another, I don't know, as my five, seven, ten years. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't have a sort of mm. set plan. But what I do really want to do is make sure that all this knowledge and experience that I've built up, 
I can share with the younger generation, both male and female, if I can sort of, I suppose, to use the modern terminology, pay back in some shape or form to those people coming through so it helps them with their careers, then that's what I would really like to do. And I would feel as I'd achieved a lot if I, if I can do that. Do you know how much you have, you're going you're gonna to get all shy here, but I'm going to ask you anyway, <laughs> do, can you measure, do you know how much you have inspired your, your own children, especially your daughters? Um, yes, and I'll tell you why, because my, I think actually this was another very proud moment, was when my daughter nominated me for an award. I thought when your own daughter does that, then you think, gosh, I must have done something right. (laughs) (laughs) I was very, very, I was so chuffed with that. I really was completely blown away because you kind of don't really think that your kids are, you know, they're just part of it. And, you know, you drag them into the office occasionally when the the childminder has got a day sick. And, uh, but you don't think that they've really registered what you do but mm. they both de- they're both very different and they both definitely have but but when when the younger one nominated me for this award i was i was quite blown away and i thought yes they definitely appreciate what i do which is very flattering absolutely what um motivated you to stay and then to move away in in your career i mean i suppose i'm thinking about bruin dolphin uh, in in particular so i was at bruin dolphin for 29 years and I left collectively with quite a few of the other board members. It wasn't my personal choice. And it was probably one of the saddest points in my career. Mm. But it was probably also one of the best things that ever happened to me in a way, because it was good to leave a firm and go to another firm. And I was very lucky to be recruited pretty quickly. And that just gave me a whole new perspective on life, although it was very similar, but smaller firm. And I loved working there as well. So I I think these moments are meant to happen for a reason. Mm. And you always learn from them. No, I I hear exactly what you're saying. What would you say the biggest challenge has been for you throughout your career? Is there one, one event? Or I mean, maybe it was that? It probably was leaving Burr and Dolphin, because, you know, 29 years at the same firm, I was the 60th person on the payroll when I joined. And there were over 2000 people when I left. So I'd really grown up with the firm. And I, Mm. you know, I knew everything and I knew everything about it. And it was really scary, really, really scary leaving and thinking I I really was um, very unsettled about that. Sure. But then things all sort of fell into place again. So I guess the other thing has been literally trying to get people, male colleagues to think more um, you know, that sometimes you sit in a meeting and I'll say something and I think, am I speaking in Japanese or something? Has nobody. <laughs> and then a colleague will say exactly the same thing as I thought I just said. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, what? no, that happens all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I said it in English. Um, but... <laughs> so what, what do you put that down to? I don't I think sometimes people don't want to hear what you want what you're saying. It's as simple as that. I don't know. I don't know, but you know, I it, I'm afraid I I don't give up that easily. You know, if at first I don't succeed, I just keep going, which <laughs> is is about the only way to get through it. There are certainly um and I, you know, I'm sure this is true of any any um career, you know, particularly men who don't want you to succeed and will you know, either block you by not hearing you or 
do more mm. other things to to th threaten your progress that has always been a challenge and you know at the end of the day you can probably count those people on one hand but they mm. still make quite an impact on you as you go through and you know it's unfortunate but that's the way of the world but then there are probably women who'll try and stop other women from succeeding as well so uh, I believe these women exist what would you say the most unexpected part of becoming a CEO was in terms of what you expected the job to be was was there a kind of dimension to it that you actually perhaps hadn't quite considered or didn't realize that it was such a large part of the job oh that's a that's a good question I, I must admit, I've sort of been working with CEOs for quite a long time, so I'm not sure there was anything that came as a particular surprise, mm. except for the fact that I suddenly realized that the buck stops with me. Because mm. it's always been somebody just one step above me or, or two steps or whatever. And suddenly I thought, these people are my responsibility, these clients are my responsibility, the buck stops with me. That was a bit of a moment and particularly when we went into lockdown and those mm. sort of two weeks coming up to suddenly thinking we've got to do something and we've got to do something pretty fast here that was quite quite a scary moment but again we set up our covid committee and we all worked together and we thought through these decisions very fast very quickly very regularly and everybody was working remotely by the time Boris stood up on the 23rd of March. But um, yeah. yeah, that was quite... That a, was organised. That was memorable. <laughs> I, I, I bet it was. Something very memorable and also something you'd love to forget. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, we just got some uh, lighter quickfire questions now, which is always fun. Go for it. What, what is the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, seeing people succeed in their careers and, and just performing well and, in, and clearly enjoying themselves. I mean, if, th if that's working, everything else is working. Absolutely. Now, you've lived and worked in different cities across the UK. You've alluded to that already. Do you have a favourite? Oh, that's a tricky <laughs> one. Uh, I like Edinburgh, actually. <laughs> oh, well, I'll let you off. <laughs> Not quite Glasgow, but it's a, at least in the right country. <laughs> Actually, the first time I went to Newcastle, I loved Newcastle. I thought it was a fantastic place, but um, I, it's, it'd be a tough one to say I've got a favourite. What is your favourite time of the work day? Oh, very first thing in the morning, before the phones start ringing, before the emails coming through, cup of coffee, bowl of yoghurt, catch up on what's going on, getting the feel of, of what's going to happen during the day. I love that. But I'm a morning person anyway. So how early is that? It's slightly changed because I now, since lockdown, do yoga every morning before I, I'm at my desk. So I'm usually at my desk around eight o'clock ish. Okay. That's not too crazily early. I thought you were going to say five or 6am or something. Oh no. What is the most important skill for a chief executive to have? Do you think? Listen. Without any shadow of a doubt. What advice do you wish you'd listened to sooner? Slow down. <laughs> um, is there a character trait that you have that you do not wish upon your children? <laughs> I don't think you should ask them that question, I think. <laughs> oh, dear. Is there... Well, yes, I can be quite bossy, I suppose. <laughs> I think that's quite good in a boss, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. But as long as it comes across in the right ways. That's, that's, not, that's not the worst character trait I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, and finally, what qualities do you admire in other people? Uh, patience, 
understanding, listening. It's so important to be able to take on board what is around you. And I think people who do that, you know, some of the best people I've worked with have all been people who have taken care and listened and focused and concentrated. I had one CEO and he just remembered everybody's names. I mean, it was Mm. extraordinary, extraordinary. But that personal touch he gave, and it didn't matter whether it was a dustman or a, you know, one of the most important people in the world, he would still treat them exactly the same. My father was the same. He treated everybody equally. And I think that's wonderful and and marvellous. Everybody's a human being. It is an amazing thing. And it's also a thing, something that really always stands out when someone remembers your name. I would totally agree with you. Well, your name is definitely Sarah. Yes. (laughs) And I want to thank you very much for, for such a wonderful chat. It's been great, Asma. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Sarah was such a joy to speak to. You know, this is someone who's a CEO, who's risen up the ranks, but who still thinks that it's really important to listen. She seems very compassionate, very approachable, and also just someone who cares for her employees. And all of this just makes me think, I think she'd be a great boss. I'd love her as a boss. Thank you so much for listening to Talking Success. You can find out more about Withers on their website, withersworldwide.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to get updates on the latest episodes or leave us a review. We're taking a break for the holidays, but we'll be back in the new year with more interviews. You'll be hearing from more guests, including the creator of world-changing software and a man who altered the course of Formula One racing. Next episode, I'll be talking to Violette about striking out on her own as a makeup artist and incorporating sustainability into her own brand. Talking Success is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Leo Schick. The executive producer is Kate Taylor. And I'm Asma Mir. Goodbye.